Welcome to Paradis, a broadcast dedicated to helping Christians develop a biblical worldview, preparing us to think scripturally and soundly about our world today. I'm your host, Brian Nixon. Joining me on today's broadcast is Dr. Joseph Holden, author, pastor, and president of Veritas International University, and Luke Betzner, pastor, author, and director of institutional effectiveness at Veritas International University. Welcome, gentlemen. Good to be with you both. Glad to be here, Brian. Thank you. Well, being that this is a new podcast, I thought it'd be appropriate to begin our time together to discuss the name Paradis. Luke, I think you came up with the name. So give our listeners the definition of Paradis. And then, of course, Joe, you could chime in as you see fit. But Luke, let's turn it over to you. Sure. So Paradis is a Latin word, of course, and we're fond of that. And we're using the word Veritas, an international university. But uh, Paradis made the most sense because it means to be ready. And some of you may recognize that amongst our audience as part of the Coast Guard motto, Semper Paratus, or always ready. Now, that being said, this is drawn from Scripture, and the current context of that we're going to let Joe speak to, but primarily the word is there to evidence this idea that we're always ready, even though we're not using the word Semper, We're just using that word paratus, that we're ready and we're prepared. Awesome. Thanks for that. Joe, do you have any other insight on the word paratus? No, not much. Uh, Luke did a great job. It's about being prepared and equipped to give a reasoned defense for the faith. And it can be used in all kinds of different contexts uh, within a sentence. But in our context, it has to do with apologetics is preparing, because if you don't prepare yourself before the opportunity to defend the faith, then you're not really ready to give an answer, a clear and cogent response to anybody who would need clarification or attack the Christian faith or anything of that sort. So what a great word that is. Well, thanks for that, Joe. And as you just alluded to, our focus on Paratus will be apologetics this semester. And we're going to be using Dr. Holden's book, Living Loud, as our springboard. And so during this semester broadcast, we'll touch on several important topics, such as truth, God's existence, miracles, Jesus's divinity, biblical reliability, among many other engaging subjects. But gentlemen, before we jump into these engaging subjects and topics, I thought it'd be a good idea to begin our time together with a simple question. What exactly is apologetics? And we'll start with you, Joe. Why don't you define what apologetics is? Well, apologetics is a word used in Scripture. It's used some nine times in its Greek form, apologia. The essential passage that we draw from is 1 Peter 3.15, where it says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense. That's that word apologia to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear or gentleness and respect. So Paul made clear that he was put here for the defense of the faith. Twice in Philippians chapter 1, he says, I am put here for the defense of the faith, and then he follows it up with a statement that says, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. 
And when we use the word apologetics, it's, it's a word that's a judicial term. It's not a military term. It's a judicial one in which a lawyer is pictured defending his client in a courtroom. So it's a, literally a reasoned defense of the Christian faith. And Brian and Luke, I know you know this, but the word apologetics is not new. It was instituted way back in, even during the time of Plato and Socrates, where one of Plato's dialogues, dialogues was called the Apology. It means the defense, and it was chronicling the defense of Socrates before an Athenian court because he was being charged with atheism in Greece, and they ultimately sentenced him to death. Well, the Apology chronicled Socrates' defense before the Athenian court. So the word's been around a long time. It's not a new invention, and we see it uh, abundantly in the New Testament. Hmm. Great, great. Thanks for that, Joe. Luke, give us some examples, particularly some New Testament examples of where apologetics were used. Uh, Joe referenced the Apostle Paul. We know Jesus used forms of apologetics, but are there some clear examples in the New Testament of apologetics being used? That's a great question, Brian. I think one of the ones that's my favorite is when the Apostle Paul steps into Athens. He's before the Areopagite Council, and he's declaring to them the nature of the unknown God. Now, as Joe mentioned, when Socrates was on trial, per se, for atheism, the atheism that he was on trial for was not the kind of atheism we might think of today, where it's just a general denial of any gods in particular, or a lack of belief in, as the modern atheists would say, but it was the denial of the gods of that area. So the Roman gods, the Greek gods, a disbelief in those was sufficient to, to cause the charge of atheism. Now, Polycarp was tried for the same thing. They called him an atheist because he was denying belief in their gods, even though he did not deny the belief in all gods. So I find it really interesting that Paul, probably being aware of the apology that was written there regarding Socrates, dodges this bullet and doesn't try to declare to them a god that's separate from any of the gods they've worshipped, but comes in and pulls an unknown entity from their own altar and fleshes it out. So he protects himself from the charge of atheism, and in so is able to give God a full-throated hearing, and able to build a bridge and build relationships through culture and their own poets in their own language in the city where their council existed. So he uses his knowledge of culture, his knowledge of the Christian faith and the Jewish faith and the Greek philosophers, and builds a bridge, which is so important with apologetics, is that it's not just about arguing like some people might think it is. It's about building relationships. And Paul was an excellent example of that. Mm, great, great answer, Luke. Thanks for that. So, you know, someone may say, well, Apologetics was important in classical and biblical times like, you know, Joe, you, and Luke are describing. But why is apologetics important in today's climate? What, what do we hope to accomplish with the use of apologetics? I know, Luke, you just referred to one as a bridge builder. But, Joe, what would you say to the person who says, what do we want to accomplish with apologetics? Oh, good, good question. Because just as the early church and the church fathers were 
involved in a culture of philosophy and of theology and of the unbelieving culture at that time. So also, we don't find ourselves in a vacuum either. We also live in a culture, and our culture today is one in which challenges religious belief or faith or seek evidence of things not seen. And what we want to accomplish is simply stated in 1 Timothy 2, when Paul writes to the young pastor in Ephesus and says he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what his ultimate goal is, is to give a clear reason defense or articulation of the Christian faith in order that the hearer can hear what the gospel is unobfuscated by his own maybe faulty presuppositions or own pet doctrine or own uh, ideas about the nature of reality or the world. So what we're trying to accomplish is to bring a clear presentation to the unbeliever of what the gospel is and why they should believe in it. Now, with that said, apologetics can only take you so far. It can only lead the horse to the water, but it's up to the horse to decide to drink. And that's certainly what we do today. Apologetics can't save anybody, but it's the intellectual reasoned defense and articulation of the faith. So our goal is very clear, to show somebody clearly what the gospel is all about and why they should believe in it. Mm, So good. Luke, do you have any further insight on that? I just wanted to confirm Joe's usage of that expression about leading a horse to water. I recall that there was an older gentleman who'd been a farmer all of his life, and when he heard that expression, particularly in regard to people coming to faith, he said, well, you know how you can get the horse to drink? And we said, no. And he said, you've got to salt the oats. You've got to make them thirsty <laughs> enough to drink. And I feel like That's the right. apologetic side of things does exactly that. It enhances... Because everybody's dealing with the same evidence, right? We all see the same things. We all understand their place in the world, per se, but we handle that evidence differently because we might have a different goal. But apologetics helps correct the perspective by adding that salt to the oats to view it in a way that's more compelling. Mm, I love that. Love so that. true. Colossians Colossians 4, 6 tells us, let our speech be seasoned with salt that we know how to mm. answer each one. So that's so important that we speak in such a way that creates a thirst for more information or for deeper study within the biblical text. And also salt was a preservative, wasn't it? So it's also at the same time giving clarity, it is also preserving our culture and preserving truth in the minds of the unbeliever. Mm, that's some rich, uh, rich discussion points there. Thanks for sharing that, gentlemen. You know, so if apologetics is the defense of the Christian faith, what our listeners may not know is there are various schools of thought or types of apologetic approaches. So let's talk about these different types of approaches. And before I turn over to you, Joe and Luke, these uh, to unpack these a little more, let's give our listeners a big picture overview of these four schools of thought. The first is evidential. And this is where evidence is provided to support the Christian faith. The second is historical, where historical documents such as archaeology and other things are used to support the Christian claims. um, Presuppositional is where Christianity is defended from basic assumptions. And the fourth is classical, where well-reasoned answers and arguments are provided to objections to the Christian faith. 
So let's let's unpack some of these. Joe, we'll start with you. What exactly is evidential apologetics and why should we as Christians be using evidence? Well, evidential apologetics emphasizes the usage of tangible evidence. Just like a lawyer in a courtroom, they would present Exhibit A, Exhibit B, and so forth. They want something to present that is tangible, that is observable, that's testable, that's something that the, the senses can use and to correspond to the scriptures. So it's much like holding court. It, submit your evidence and let's see where the truth is. And John Warwick Montgomery is a, a modern-day evidential apologist, or, or even Josh McDowell and Don Stewart and so forth. These other apologists are using the artifacts of archaeology, the literary history, the documentation, because they see a tangible value, and rightly so. It's so very important to realize that even all of these apologetic systems that you listed, Brian, are often cross-pollinated with each other and describe the emphasis on which the apologetic endeavor is being uh, accomplished. So evidential apologetics, I think we need that if it's used at the proper time and the proper way. I think uh, the Lord can really work through uh, the physical evidence. Mm, beautiful. Well, let's move to the second, historical Luke, um, what is historical apologetics, and, and why is it important for us today? Great question. So classically, historical apologetics deals with written witnesses. And so we could be dealing with ancient scrolls. We could be dealing with particular historians that wrote contemporaneously with the period of history or shortly thereafter. So they're looking at what would be considered authoritative witnesses, in some cases, they're looking at the only existing witnesses, whether they're very authoritative or not. And so, say for instance, you would have someone like Tacitus or Suetonius who writes The Lives of the Caesars, where he's giving information about eras in which Christianity might be incidentally confirmed. One of my favorite examples is the letter to Pliny, or Pliny if some have called him, in about 113 A.D. He writes to the Roman emperor describing a situation in Cappadocia where he's been sent to investigate the failings of the imperial cult and try to sort of rein things back in. And from that, we gather some of the most important information just the beginning of the second century about Christian assemblies, that they would gather, you know, they didn't have buildings per se, they're usually in a field, they're singing hymns, and then they peacefully disperse. And you know, he even talks about putting some of them to torture to find out what they were really about and couldn't find anything different than what he was able to observe. So this incidental information where he's sent there for a particular problem and then describes it is considered an antagonistic witness, but nonetheless provides us with very important information that we probably wouldn't even have otherwise confirming the normal New Testament practice that, quite frankly, has been preserved to the present day in some way, shape, or form about how Christians worship the Lord and, and go forward from there. But the, the downside, of course, is that there's gaps and there's hostile witnesses, and one must very carefully sort through them and place them on a proper spectrum of perspective to ensure that 
the proper things are getting contributed to the narrative. Mm. And I, so we know these uh, ancient evidences of, of old historians, as, as you've, you've put it. But Joe, we also have the archaeological evidence, and I know you have written a book on the archaeological evidences. So how does archaeology come into play with both evidential apologetics and historical apologetics? Well, that's a great question because archaeology is one of those fantastic disciplines that gives you boots on the ground, artifact in your hand to be able to correspond what this artifact tells us with the scripture itself. Um, it's very important to remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, verse 12, he said, Unless you believe me in earthly things, how will you ever believe me in heavenly things? In other words, if the things I say about this earth check out, you should give me the benefit of the doubt when I talk about heavenly things, the unseen realm, the spiritual arena. Uh, you should give me the benefit of the doubt when I talk about things you can't see or put into a Petri dish or a test tube. And every twist of the archaeologist's spade uh, in the Middle East today, we're turning up more information that's perfectly consistent and corroborates with the historical narratives of, of Scripture. It's just an amazing thing. When the historical and the archaeological come together, that's where you see the blending of this evidential and historical approach to apologetics comes together. It's a wonderful cross-pollination. Mm. We need both of them. Yeah, that's marvelous. So we have evidential and we have historical. The next school of thought is presuppositional, and I'll turn back to you, Joe. What What is the presuppositional school of thought um, with apologetics about? Well, the presuppositionalists start doing apologetics which emerges out of their view of the sinful nature of mankind. Because man is fallen and totally depraved, the presuppositionalist will say that logical and rational argumentation uh, as a defense of the faith can't really be done effectively with fallen man, because if man is fallen, he can't understand spiritual truth. And the only way to understand the spiritual truth of God's Word and the redemptive plan that we read about in Scripture is to presuppose God's existence in nature and also the Scriptures. If we presuppose those two items, then interpret the world with those assumptions in mind, then that's the only way you can really make sense of what the Bible is saying or come to terms with spiritual truth. Yeah. And then the Spirit works through that avenue. But until that time comes where fallen man assumes those things to be true, they presuppose them to be true, then there's really no effective way to reach the unbeliever. There's just no common ground between the regenerated and the unregenerated individual. Mm -hmm. Logic and rational argumentation just doesn't have an effect until you assume those two things to be true. Yeah. So, so you gave the example of John Work Montgomery, who's an evidential uh, apologist. We, we may be able to say someone like a, a Dr. Stephen Collins is historical and evidential as well. Who, who would be some leading presuppositional apologists that our listeners should be aware of? Well, you can look back uh, at the professor at Westminster uh, seminary would be Cornelius Van Til at the turn of the century, early 20th century. In the modern day, it could be John Frame, uh, Greg Bonson, Russus Rosh Dooney. 
uh, would be all presuppositionalist. Gordon Clark would be another one as well. And they all have different nuances and, and slants and emphasis within that presuppositional approach. So it's not a one-size-fits-all, per se. Uh, there's different emphases within, within that approach among them. Yeah. Thanks for that, Joe. So we so far have evidential apologetics, we have historical apologetics, and we have presuppositional apologetics. Let's tackle the last of the schools of thought, which is classical apologetics. And uh, Luke, we'll turn it over to you. What, what exactly is classical apologetics? So the classical apologetics is going to set itself apart from the presuppositional, but not entirely so. The main, the main emphasis here is that rather than assuming that the unregenerate mind is incapable of grasping truth or incapable of following logical process because of its fallen, self, fallen nature, uh, which often comes along with the, the, the presuppositional side, this classical apologetics really focuses on what we would call pre-evangelism. So it notices that there are gaps in people's understandings of basic things that can be remedied by a proper application of logic and critical process. Gregory Kokel is really good at this and set up a system. Some may know his book Tactics, where he makes a play for drawing out from an individual who's on the wrong side of the fence, reasoned answers and helping them see them themselves. So, you know, for instance, if someone was assuming that uh, that there was the Son of God, is one example that you could use, but the proof of God, cosmologically, teleologically, etc., had not been provided, then it may be considered to be a moot point for those out there who are already using their minds to question the tenets of the Christian faith. And so this classical apology goes in and fills in the gaps so that there can be a foundation set that can be logically scrutinized and can then serve as a foundation for further reasonings about causes, really. You know, the uncaused cause, and then if there is something that exists, if it's finite, then it must have a cause. Norman Geisler and our own Dr. Joseph Holden are experts in these particular fields of apologetics. Mm. And so, so if classical apologetics begins with establishing really the basis of truth, and then we go on to show evidence for, for God's truth, what are some of the ways uh, that we show the truthfulness or that truth corresponds to reality. And Joe, I'll turn it over to you. Are, are, what are some of the arguments? And I know in future episodes, we're going to unpack the arguments in more detail, but as kind of a, a teaser or, or wetting the lips of, of the listeners, what are some of these arguments that are used by classical apologists to show the truthfulness, not only of the Bible, but there is a God? Well, that's a, that's a great question, Brian. And remember, the classical approach, as, as Luke articulated, is dealing with one's worldview prior to observing and interpreting the evidence. The classical apologist would say that evidence needs to be interpreted, and one's interpretation of that evidence comes through one's worldview. And if the worldview is shaded a certain color, that evidence is going to be looked at with a certain color of shade. For example, 
an atheist would not believe in God's existence and therefore would not believe in the Son of God, because there's no God who can have a son. Nor will he believe in the Bible as the Word of God, because it takes a God that is in order to deliver a revelation from himself. And so the classicalists would use arguments to try to help the unbelievers' worldview questions get straightened out so they can look at the gospel, they can look at the Word of God, they can look at God's revelation with clear sets of glasses, which are interpretive framework through which you interpret everything you see and experience in this world. And so one of them would be, for example, if you're speaking with an atheist, um, a classical apologist would know that the atheist, unless he believes that God exists, he will never, ever receive Jesus as the Son of God. And so he would perhaps offer an argument from design that says, design implies a designer. There is design in the universe, therefore a designer exists. And they would support that second premise. They would encourage people to see the design in the universe. They would look at DNA, which contains information, specified complexity, ordered words and, and statements and information systems. And they would say that information systems can't come here on their own. They need an intelligent cause for them to exist. And if that's the case, then we don't have an adequate explanation for this information here in the biological world, especially in the human cell, to account for what we're seeing. So there has to be an intelligent cause to account for an uh, informational uh, effect, and that's what a classicalist would do. Mm. And then, therefore, the atheist can make his decision, is this true or is this false? If it's true, then he now opens the door to believe in Christ as the Son of God. So there's many other examples, Brian, but but that's essentially what the classicalists would try to do with that particular argument, to change the worldview. Yeah, that's great insight, Joe. Thanks for that. So, you know, we mentioned with evidential and historical, we mentioned John Work Montgomery and Steve Collins. Presuppositional, you gave us a whole list. And Luke, you, you referenced a few in your statement, a classical apologist, Norm Geisler, you, Joe Holden, um, can you think of any others, Joe, that our listeners should be aware of? I, I think of R.C. Sproul as a classical apologist, William Lane Craig. Are, are, are there other guys that listeners should be aware of and maybe go study some of their works? Sure. You have uh, Gary Habermas, who was an expert on historical studies. Um, he has written on the resurrection of Christ. Uh, his works are, are very good, and you find that um, various uh, apologists of old as well. Um, you know, anybody who wants to read the ancient uh, Aristotle has some things to, to glean from him, especially in terms of how he systematized logic and the rules of thought. He didn't invent them, but he codified them. would be excellent. Or Stuart Hackett, or some of the other 20th century, you know, apologists that could really... Um, articulate the faith and defend the faith, and there's so many works out there that one could could hold on to. It's just just uh, amazing. Yes, so 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 good. So one of the things that uh, we know is that apologetics does have limits. 
apologetics can help an unbeliever see that Jesus is the way to salvation. But ultimately, it's the role of the Holy Spirit and the individual as to whether he or she will place their faith in in Jesus. So after all, the unbeliever can't believe in God until he or she first believes that, that God exists. So what are some of the other limits of apologetics? Um, Luke, we'll start with you. Is there anything that apologetics, they, they excel, if you will, at giving the historical evidence, classical arguments, um, you know, looking at evidential elements such as archaeology, but, but are there any other limits that we should be aware of with apologetics? Well, I think it's a great question because it really helps us flesh out what's happening in the conversation with the unbeliever, the agnostic, etc. And while we can speak to empirical evidence and we can speak to conceptual arguments, there are some things that the Bible claims to be true for which there is not a, a piece of evidence that you can give somebody. And there's not necessarily an argument that itself manifests itself as the best argument initially. And so the limitations in some cases are going to be different in every single conversation, and that's the ability of the person who is hearing you articulate to both receive the argument and then to choose it. That's to choose to step into it. And I, I, I like to think of it like this. When people are given that type of argumentation, a lot of apologists that are just getting started, they'll think that it's their job to convince that person that the argument is true. And they'll feel defeated, and they'll feel that they've failed in the event that that person continues to rebut them, even if those rebuttals are illogical, irrational, or are clearly from a wrong perspective. And... Just a note of encouragement on it, although there may feel like there are specific inabilities that you have, that's part of the territory. You can present the evidence. That person is fully responsible then to make that choice, and it is not your responsibility as to whether or not they make the choice or your responsibility to actually change their mind. It's their responsibility to change their mind. And hopefully in our presentation... Well, that's a limitation. We can't just convince them. We can present appropriate things to them and know then that they are fully aware of what they must decide in order to take the next, the next step. Very good. Joe, do you have any other insights on the limitations of apologetics? Well, I, I think it's important to make a distinction between faith that and faith in Faith that deals with the intellectual obstacles. Faith that God exists. Faith that the Word of God is actually comes from God. You know, faith that salvation is substantiated by biblical manuscripts and the works of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. You see, faith that deals with the objective, the factual, the rational basis for the faith. Faith in, on the other hand, deals with the volitional aspect. This is the area of evangelism. This is the area of decision and receiving the gospel for yourself. 
not the issue of perceiving. See, perceiving is apologetics, receiving is the area of evangelism. And the more we make a distinction between these two domains, the more we're better prepared to see that apologetics can't save anybody. It can only clear the ground so people can walk unhindered on some clean pavement to understand whatever's before them in the scriptures or the gospel message and so forth. So that distinction, I think, is very important to keep. So good. This has been such a flourishing conversation. I hope our listeners have appreciated as much as I have. And before we we conclude, uh, Joe and Luke, um, you know, every Christian needs tools. We need tools in our toolbox. And I know throughout this broadcast, we've been throwing out names and books and, and, you know, areas for our listeners to do some further study. But just briefly, and you don't have to give us too many, just give us some of your favorite books that you think should be on the shelf of every uh, Christian. And Luke, let's begin with you. What are some of your favorite apologetic books that maybe our listeners should pick up and read? I love Unshakable Foundations by Geisler and From God to Us by Geisler and Nix, who co-authored that with him. And, you know, these are very strongly argued points from a classical apologist viewpoint. And you're going to deal with a lot of evidence. You're going to deal with a lot of good things. And then I guess one other that I'd mentioned is, or that I'd like to mention, is The Universe Next Door by James Sire. He also authored Twisting Scripture, which is great for internal, intramural faith arguments. So those four really are great places to start looking and evaluating how people are arguing and where they're coming from in their worldview. Mm. Joe, what about you? What, what tools should Christians have in their toolbox? Well, you know, today's modern Christians often have lost touch with the classical works. I would really recommend book one of Thomas Aquinas' uh, Summa Theologica. Uh, Book one, because it deals with the nature of God, the existence of God, is God in time, how come he doesn't change, his infinitude, his simplicity, and so forth. It really gives you a great handle on the nature of God, because, let's face it, usually all deviations or unorthodoxies or heresies flow from a misconception of the nature of God. Aquinas has a wonderful grasp on the classical view of God's attributes and nature. And then secondly, I would recommend The Big Book of Apologetics by Norman Geisler. It's a reference work which should be on everybody's shelf uh, to draw upon when they need to do a little bit deeper research. Mm. And then finally, the book by A.W. Tozer, that little small paperback. It's almost a, a wonderful devotional that's written from Tozer when he thought that people were losing uh, their grip on the nature of God and understanding who he was as a person and the kind of being he was. So that's a mid-20th century work that really was timely written, and it's a very quick read, but I think that most would really get a great benefit out of it. Mm. A.W. Tozer. Wonderful. Thanks, both of you, for that. And Luke and Joe, thank you both for this inaugural broadcast and podcast of Pradas. It was a rich and satisfying conversation. Well, thank you, Luke and Brian. Appreciate you having me. My privilege, Brian and Joe. 
great to have in the conversation. And we invite our listeners to join us on the next podcast as we discuss what is truth. So until next time, proclaim the gospel, equip the saints, and defend the faith.